Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the accidental Libertarian. And Richard, today we're taking something of a journey through your intellectual history inspired by a piece called The Accidental Libertarian that uh, you wrote a number of years ago. And before we even start unpacking the rather provocative adjective there, why don't we start with the noun? Libertarian is a word that can be shaded a number of different ways uh, in terms of your own political thinking. What does it mean when you call yourself a libertarian? Well, it turns out that there are two broad traditions inside the libertarian uh, camp. One of them tends to be what they call the anarcho tradition. Uh, they usually sort of uh, wince at the possibility that they don't believe in any form of government whatsoever. Once they believe in some form of government, then they almost always have to concede that there's something to do with respect to taxation, and there also has to be something perhaps to do with eminent domain. Uh, but there's where they like to call it a day. And so there are vast numbers of other kinds of government functions which tend to be put to one side, for example, the control of monopolies and cartel arrangements, the creation of infrastructure is often going to be doubted under uh, these kinds of situations, the use of recordation systems. And, you know, for some time I was very attracted to that particular position, but it was a question of what was the diet of cases that you did. And early on in my legal career, I studied at Oxford, which made a huge difference uh, that is now lasted over 50 years because my initial acquaintance into the law was not with the breathless constitutional controversies of the day, uh, but it turned out to be with Roman law texts dealing with the contract of stipulatio and various medieval texts dealing with the different writs that could be used to recover real property which had been taken by somebody else. And if you look at those particular things, the usual initial focus of a legal system is in disputes that arise between two private parties where somebody says, you didn't keep your promise, uh, you took something from me that belonged to me, you hurt me, or whatever. And a libertarian theory which worries about the constraints on force and forward force does pretty well in dealing with these ordinary two-party disputes. And so as you start to go through things and see the way in which other uh, positions start to come into play with respect to these kinds of simple disputes, you realize that, you know, there's a lot right with a libertarian theory. So just to give you um, one of the simplest kinds of explanations, if you're a good libertarian and you start seeing price supports in various markets for agriculture, if you start seeing restrictions on entry in motor vehicle or in airline markets, if you start to see government cartelization through zoning laws or through the agricultural laws or the National Labor Relations Act, you have a very strong theory for saying this stuff is just absolutely crazy and you can really keep yourself in very good shape. Uh, so one of the reasons why the libertarian theory is so hard to shake entirely and why you don't want to shake it entirely is it goes after huge numbers of government programs which run things in reverse. That is, create an environment where you substitute monopoly arrangements sponsored by government in exchange for competitive arrangements in which the government does is supply infrastructure and enforces contract. And if you go back and you look at the great Chicago economist who uh, graced the halls of the university when I arrived there in 1972, um, three of them, perhaps all four of them, Coase, Friedman, 
um, Stigler and Becker reacted very strongly to the kind of nationalization of situations under the New Deal and other kinds of progressive institutions. Uh, but the problem is when you start switching your focus and say, well, now what are we going to start doing with financing infrastructure through special assessments? How are we going to organize some kind of a bankruptcy system one way or another? How are we going to figure out how to allocate frequencies in the spectrum by whatever mechanisms you want? All of a sudden, the government problem starts to look a little bit more complicated. And what you need to do is to figure out how you can justify a system which has a more comprehensive power and also overcome the embarrassing glitches of a libertarian theory, which allows for taxation in eminent domain, but always treats them as belonging in the closet. Don't explore how they operate, because if you do, you may understand that your whole system will fall apart. And so you then need to develop what I call the classical liberal tradition of limited government and private property rights. And essentially what that does is it says we have to have forced exchanges by government which impose upon people obligations that they do not voluntarily assume and which they are not charged with because they committed a wrong against other individuals, but because we have to improve social welfare. And then somebody listens to that phrase, social welfare, and there's this huge hiccup. Does this not mean that the entire libertarian system falls to pieces because social welfare becomes a uniform trump that you could put in any place for any reason at any time? And for a long time, that objection struck me as very strong. And slowly I began to think, and it was mainly an intellectual set of development as I continued to teach different courses in the 1970s, that no, this was not correct. Uh, that what happens when you're talking about social welfare is you have to have the correct definition of that term. And there are two definitions. One of them is what you might wish to call some form of composite or aggregate utilitarianism, in which you say uh, there is this blob out there called the popular, and there's more happiness under one version of the world than there is under the other world, or more wealth in one than under the other. And so you pick the one with the bigger pie without worrying about the slices. And the reason why people get very worried about that is that you can have a bigger pie and one guy can gobble the whole thing up. Uh, so what you need to do is to have a system which has both pie-enhancing characteristics by government action and also respects the entitlements of all the individuals as created in a libertarian state. And so you switch from the aggregate message to a kind of a Parisian formula, which for those who don't understand the term, um, essentially says that a one state of the world is better than another if all individuals by their subjective lights are at least as well off in the second stage and one person or more is better off in that stage than in the first stage. And the point is, if you have that distributional constraint, the utility monster cannot force you uh, to make one person sacrifice for the benefit of the others, at least in obvious cases. There are going to be exceptions like there are in everything in this world. And so what happens is, you now look at a theory of taxation, usually a theory of flat taxes on broad basis, which seems to satisfy that condition. With eminent domain, so long as you compensate the individual whose property is taken for its best alternative use independent of the government action and there's some quote quote social surplus that's created you've managed to satisfy it so the Parisian test does very well in first creating all the standard utilitarian or rather libertarian rights of contract actions and tort actions and property acquisitions but it also allows you to explain
explain collective behaviors in a way which doesn't leave you with two choices, either complete paralysis so the government could do nothing or total discretion so they could wipe anybody out uh, so long as it acts quote-unquote into good faith. And finding that middle position was the key to my evolution uh, as a libertarian. So I tried to explain in that particular essay when somebody asked me to write it why it was um, that the position had changed. We still haven't talked about accidental, but that's a different discussion. Well, that was actually the next question I was going to bring up with you, Richard, the accidental part of your self-definition as an accidental libertarian, which is provocative, as I said earlier, because here you are widely held up at at this point in your career, but also decades prior, as one of the leading libertarian thinkers who's ever walked the planet, and this was what? Happenstance? Explain the accidental part of this, Richard. Well, the actual the, – the, the immediate impulse for this was there's a movie about France or something called The Accidental Tourist. And I kind of liked the fact that it sort of suggested that you didn't plan to become a tourist, like I didn't plan to become a libertarian, uh, but a whole variety of circumstances kind of overwhelmed you. And so The Accidental was the designed to capture the way in which I got into this particular stuff. And and what is perhaps a little bit unconventional about my development is that it is highly cerebral, largely independent of the state of affairs that exists in the world at large. Um, So when I was developing these kinds of theories, it started probably when I was a senior in high school, when a great teacher I had named Franklin Watson, who I think had been a Brown instructor at some point, introduced us to a bunch of stuff on the British empiricists, mainly having to do with epistemology, uh, but clearly connected to political theory. After all, both Locke and Hume, the two great writers of this particular period, had strong epistemological views on the theory of knowledge, which influenced the way in which they thought about legal issues. And I only discovered later, after I went to Oxford and did Roman law, uh, that Mr. Hume, who was a Scotsman, was in fact also trained in Roman law. So a lot of the things that resonated with my Roman law find themselves in his theory of human knowledge, or treatise on human knowledge, uh, which was written around 1739 to 1740. So reading all of these things, uh, what happens is it starts you thinking, and what you do is you constantly ask yourself, where am I wrong? How can you fix this? And I sort of developed the following theorem, and I still like to apply it, is every time I go into an argument and I think I've lost it, and when I was young this was very, very frequent, uh, what you tried to do is to say, what is it that the other guy said that's the one point that you think you have to incorporate into your particular theory in order for it to be respectable? And then you slowly try to expand so that the cases that seem to fall outside your theory now can fall in your theory after it's been modified. And what I discovered over many years of doing this particular number was that if, in fact, you allowed for these Parisian improvements by forced exchanges in high transactions cost setting, you were largely but not completely there. Now, what do I mean by all those words? A forced exchange is where the government or sometimes a private party forces you to surrender something which you indubitably own in exchange for which they give you most of the time some particular form of compensation. And the theory is when do you allow these and when not? And the phrase high transactions cost is designed to capture the notion that you don't allow forced exchanges where parties themselves can voluntarily transact. So to give you the simple example, and it's a profound one, is somebody sees that your lawn is not mowed, and what they do is they just march up, take out their lawnmower, and clear the gas. Then they knock on the door saying, I've provided you with a benefit, pay me. 
to which answers, I've already hired my own gardener. He was coming tomorrow. And, you know, there was no immediate necessity. The house wasn't going to burn down if you didn't mow the lawn. And so what you did is you became an officious intermeddler. You're entitled to absolutely nothing because the last thing we want to do is to let you cover your costs because it will only induce you to do something again. But there are all of these necessity cases. And so, for example, suppose we just change the situation. And now what happens is this guy standing on the street comes along and sees that the pipes have burst in your basement. And what he does is he opens the door up. And what he manages to do is to turn out the water and to remove the stuff while you're sitting in the Bahamas somewhere, unaware of all this stuff that's going on. It turns out he has some real expenses and he asks you to compensate for them. It's a very different case than the lawn mowing case because the uh, transactions costs were high. And in fact, the legal system then develops, as the libertarian theory generally does not, a whole doctrine of necessity, uh, which allows for the suspension of ordinary property rights when there's an immediate peril uh, to life of property. And what's interesting about it is every legal system going back to Rome uh, has such an exception, and that virtually all of them, being aware of the dangers associated with this particular operation, have never extended it beyond these very serious core kinds of cases. And in some cases, it turns out uh, that what happens is the necessities are so grave and the ability to compensate so feeble uh, that what you do is you relax the just compensation requirement. Hayek, who had many confused things to say about forced exchanges because he was uh, not a systematizer, rightly said that extensively, if there is an enormous gain that you can achieve by taking somebody else's property under circumstances where you can't possibly pay it at the end of the day. You're entitled to do so if there's a huge surplus of gain over the loss. And there are actually some famous cases having to do with realignment of water rights which embody that particular principle. But the important thing is not that you can find one or two exceptions to it, the real that is to the compensation rule, is that you could only find one or two relatively small numbers of exceptions so that what happens is the basic intuition uh, that forced exchanges are allowed is just fine. Now, the last problem, and I could talk about this if you'd like, is what does this do to the status of claims for redistribution, which I haven't talked about yet, but I think probably deserve a little message. Well, walk us through the implications for redistribution, Richard. Well, essentially, if you start looking at a hardline libertarian theory or a classical liberal theory, the only kinds of things that it sort of does is it allows for voluntary transactions, usually exchanges, or for forced exchanges, um, but you're never allowed to use the system so as to make one person poor and another person rich. Uh, There is a real complication on this having to do with what is called the division of surplus. So suppose you take a simple game with two people and each of them have 10, and now you can have a forced transaction between them and you can create 30 units of gain. Is it okay to go to 1911 on the one hand, or do you have to go to 15 to 15 to the extent that you can measure it. And most people correctly assume that proration is going to be the appropriate reason. They do it in terms of of fairness, but the economic explanation for this is if you allow it to go 1911, you're also allowing it to go 1119. These two guys will battle over the surplus and dissipate it so that if you can have an automatic division rule that stabilizes the arrangement, it's a kind of a focal point, which is why it is when people come together and they don't know exactly what to do, they say, well, let's just split the cost because 
because we roughly assume that we have the same amounts of benefits as a first working approximation. Uh, so the first thing you want to do is even within the libertarian framework and the classical liberal additions to it, there are dangers of giving disproportionate gain from collective actions. And we have a legal doctrine which actually maps into this concern called the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions, which says that the government cannot use a situation where there's a gain to everybody to make sure that it gives the majority of that gain to other people. Well, then you have situations which are not government coercion, so what do you do with charitable type situations? Well, within the libertarian framework, straight off, one of the strong elements that you have to have is a situation that allows for voluntary charitable gifts to anybody by anybody who wants to do it. And it certainly uh, is not a voluntary exchange in which you're better off except for the warm glow that follows. But there's nobody except the social Darwinists who say that these things are bad. And so the standard libertarian argument is if you allow for these charitable gifts to be made, they will become institutionalized. What you will do is you will have hospitals, schools, universities, churches, and all sorts of things that will thrive on these things. Other voluntary organizations like country clubs will announce they won't take members unless they give money to these various operations. Many religions will require people to tithe themselves. And so they say, look, you can handle the problem in that particular fashion. And there's no doubt that you could do a great deal about that, but the question is just how much. So another modification is, do you get a charitable deduction? And if you're a hard-line libertarian, hard to see why. But most of us would say that a matching grant from the government is not such a terrible thing to do because it still gives you private control, but it allows you to expand the opportunity scope. And you want to make sure that when somebody makes gifts to somebody else who's going to get the benefit, they're not going to suffer from the tax system with respect to wealth that they give away and they don't consume themselves. And then somebody will say, well, that's fine, but we have a complicated society today and these gifts are often done within ethnic groups, religious groups, and so forth. We need to have a larger program of redistribution. And so then you start talking about minimum social rights of insurance of one kind or another, in which what you do is you sort of tax everybody and then you help those who are the least fortunate. Uh, early on, these were categorical. We give it to people who are blind, who are limp, who are halt. Uh, now we tend to give it to people who are poor. And so there's this huge question as to whether or not a redistribution program by government uh, should be allowed on the grounds that diminishing marginal utility of wealth suggests that you're better off by taking a few dollars from the very rich and giving them to other people. It's a very hard debate to have, and I say on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm in favor of it. Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I'm against it. And on Sunday, I take a day of intellectual rest. And the problem that you almost always find with respect to these situations is that everybody's in favor of doing it to a certain extent, even when it's done by government coercion. But a good thing could become a bad thing if it turns out it becomes excessive relative to social resources. And I have no doubt that where we are today with the huge growth of programs Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and unemployment benefits and so forth, that the transfer state makes things worse off than they would have been if we had never started down this road at all. But on the other hand, I also conceive of ways of making it done on a smaller level, which in the end would, I think, have five high levels of social satisfaction. This then gets into another very difficult debate. If you really believe that there's got to be limits on this, can you find a way to constitutionally impose them through the takings clause or something else? At one time, when I wrote my book on takings in 1985, I thought that it was possible to do these sorts of things. But the political sentiment on the other side is so enormous, it's like sticking your finger not into a dike, but into an ocean. And there's no dike around you, and hoping that you can stop others. The 
impulses on this are much more powerful than they are on allocative gains, and therein lies another tale. If you're like me and you're kind of uneasy about redistribution, not hostile to it, at least coerced redistribution, what you want to do is to first concentrate on removing the barriers to voluntary exchange before you expand the size of the welfare state. What happens today is the political impulses to go exactly the opposite way. I can still remember when my then-teacher, Ralph Winter, who's now still a federal judge, he got very mad at some supporter of Eugene McCarthy and said, the problem about you is you like the minimum wage law so that allows you to have systems of redistribution. And I thought he was right. That is, I would rather have neither, no minimum wage law and no redistribution because people could earn their own way through, than using essentially restrictions on the sort of economic productivity of the population to create unemployment, which you could then use to justify redistributive government. Uh, So I have come to a position which I often call redistribution last, And what that position is designed to express is the notion, first, when you're looking at social reforms, remove all the barriers to trade and to entry into markets, of which there are legions, huge numbers of these. And only then do you start to think about redistribution to pick up the pieces. If you do it right, the number of people who will be in serious need will be heavily reduced because uh, overall growth will increase, unemployment levels will go down. And strangely enough, with free entry, you actually get more equality than you do in societies in which the rich can buy their way into protection by controlling the arms of government. And so uh, I think that is the lesson today. And one of the reasons why I was so opposed to the Obama administration is that it was very much in this earlier school of progressive intervention in markets justifying massive amounts of redistribution. And if you just want one illustration of how this thing can create it, just look at the impossible demands that are put on the so-called voluntary health care system with a set of minimum benefits and maximum constraints so that you see systematic failure in those markets, which would have never happened if you had uh, essentially gone the other way on health care, and instead of putting all these mandates in place, removed the barriers to interstate competition with respect to health care insurance, which would have lowered prices and would have simultaneously handled both the access and the affordability and, I think, also the quality problem. And so it's mistakes like that, which I think are absolutely ruinous. And if you look around today, what you see is there are too many people who go in that wrong direction. What they do is redistribution first, and then second is further restraints on markets. And the two things together have created, I think, the real political tensions we have today and the low growth rates that we observe in the economy over the long term. Republicans, of course, are not immune from this. Just think of ethanol subsidies in places like Iowa is a classic illustration of how it is that you can do everything wrong. And so what happens is if you're like me and you're kind of intellectually independent, what you discover is Uh, Having a political affiliation is very dangerous because then you can't speak out against your friends. So the last thing I'll ask you then is how you think your work has corresponded with the broader intellectual climate. I mean you've been at this for half a century basically. Do you feel that over that time the political climate in the country has become more or less receptive to the kind of ideas that you've built your career around? Well – I think it's actually, in the long run, it has become less um, successful as a dominant matter, but more successful as a minority position. Let me see if I could explain this, because it's kind of complicated. Um, when I came into the academic market, it was in 1968. And I could still remember interviews I had, one in particular with a man named Martin Levine at USC, um, who constantly said to me, well, I mean, when you're talking about the removal of all these restrictions on credit, because you think it will improve credit, well, put that aside and tell me about redistribution. 
persecution. And there was just a very strong sentiment that this would all work. And there was no strong inside the legal system resistance to this. Um, this was the days of OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity, of massive government grants, and the conservative movement inside the intellectual community at least in the law school level, was very small. I did not know at the time, but there were people like Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock who had written things like The Calculus of Consent, who in the political economy space had been moving towards a public choice theory. But I essentially encountered a sea in which these large-scale programs were always allowed. In the United States, they were cherished, and in England, uh, they were simply outside the scope of your legal education because this was a matter for Parliament and only Parliament to describe. And so in the early years, you know, you start seeing developments take place on the other side. My uh, dear friend Michael Levine, who recently died, wrote this wonderful stuff on deregulating the airlines as a kind of serious lesson as to how these things could do. And so what happened is in the early 70s, you start to see, even though the political climate is quite bad, uh, the intellectual climate inside the universities is changing in the sense that there is now two sides to virtually every one of these debates. And as I listened, I became slightly different myself, became more of a classical liberal, less of a libertarian, and to that extent could address the questions of collective action, which were raised in a famous book by Manker Olson in 1965. You need to have government to solve collective action problems, but I could explain which ones should be solved and which ones should be discouraged and so forth. And all of this thing, I think, took place. And then by the time you get to 1980 and the election of Ronald Reagan, there's actually something of a modest consensus moving in the opposite direction in government. You get David Stockman on budgets. Uh, David McIntosh, who was a former student of mine, wanted to introduce all sorts of cost-benefit analysis into government to see that you didn't go things over. Uh, Douglas Ginsburg ran OIRA. I mean, it was a different kind of period. And I started writing these revolutionary pieces in favor of the contract at will and basically trying to have a really tough view of the eminent domain clause uh, which would stop virtually everything that the New Deal had done in its tracks, which led to a massive amount of liberal abuse. And as I always like to say about my takings book, thank God it's been refuted 20 times, because if it had only been refuted once, it would have been pretty definitive. But the fact that everybody else keeps coming after it was slightly different toned leads me to believe that it has a certain amount of intellectual toughness in it. And during the Reagan years, there's no question that there was a lot of intellectual debate in government on uh, how much did it do? Well, it changed the second derivative. It slowed the rate of government growth, but it never could reverse things. You get Clinton after Bush. Uh, George Bush I was actually less interested in these issues than Bill Clinton was. He was more a white shoe government Republican. Clinton actually had some awareness of this. And so during those 20-year period between, say, 1980 and 2000, I think things went tolerably well. Not great, uh, because it was never my theory. Uh, under the first Bush, in the beginning, he gets spooked by things like Enron, and you start seeing Big George coming out again with all sorts of other kinds of government regulations, Sarbanes-Oxley and the like, most of which I think turned out to be a mistake. In his last two years, I think he started to do a little bit better. Then comes Obama. And, and I think this is the sort of reincarnation of the New Deal ethos, uh, where it's the second generation, and the first one failed, so we don't want a second. And the marker about that is the use 
of the term progressive is the dominant descriptive term for what the American left stands for, replacing liberal, because what they wanted to do is to recapture that they were about inequality and about economic development, social resources, environmental protection, climate change. They weren't really into things like criminal procedure and other sorts of areas which had occupied uh, the Warren court. And I think during those years, things started to get worse. And the problem, of course, is that any individual program could always receive some kind of a ad hoc justification, which might be mildly credible. You put them all together, and the, the, the most important indicator is that of overall growth, which starts to settle down to 1.5 to 2%, the kind of new normal, which is, I'm convinced, the cumulative weight of this. You get somebody like Trump, and, you know, he's actually better on many of these issues. I think he was right to pull out of Paris. I think he was right to allow the pipelines to be built and a lot of other things that he's done. But he's such a loose cannon and such a crazy guy that you have no idea whether this is going to last or not going to last. It's very difficult, I'll just end on this note, to rate presidents because the economic growth that happens during that period is to some extent the function of their fiscal and financial policies, but a lot of what they do is most important, not when they're in office, but after they're in office. So if you look at Roosevelt, for example, you know, he was right, I think, to increase spending after the high taxes were imposed. Uh, but the long-term stuff that was not recorded during his period were the legacy he had from the National Labor Relations Act, the Agricultural Adjustments Act, the Civil Aeronautics Act, the Motor Vehicle Act, all of which were cartelization statutes, which had runs of between, you know, 30 and 50 or 70 years. And those did an immense amount of harm. But which president are you going to chalk them up to, given the fact that they constantly modify themselves over time? Uh, so I would say today, what is clear is that there is a generation younger than me, because, you know, I'm 74 now, and I'm not going to be leading this battle 15 years from now. Many of students whom I've trained and many of others who I work with who are in government in the Trump administration who sort of do really internalize and understand these positions. And so what I can think I can say about it is on the intellectual front, I think the power of the sort of classical liberal movement is very, very strong. What happens is its political instantiation is going to be very uncertain. I will continue to plump for these things. I, and when I say I'm a libertarian or a classical liberal, I'm not a kind of a member of any particular party. I do everything on the individual level. I fully respect people who believe that party loyalties are important and they have to swallow their uneasiness about portions of a presidential platform they don't like. And hopefully... Um, if you can move the climate of opinion and be a little bit less governmental intervention in an economy as big as and complicated as our own, it might make an enduring business. But at this point, it's an unfinished work. Nobody can say that the situation is resolved one way or another. What you can say is, when I entered academics 50 years ago, it was pretty much a one-sided debate. That is no longer the case, even though the vast majority of legal academics tend to be left and hard left. On terms of the sheer intellectual development, it's much more evenly divided between the two sides. Okay. Thank you, Richard. And thanks, as always, to our listeners. And remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. I'm Troy Senek for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.